0: People in the rural areas are not working from home because they can't. They can't lock onto a school server. They can't lock to a business server. We're taking these things for granted in the urban areas. That gap, just since 2017, that gap has doubled in that short of a period of time. It's getting so drastically different that the internet in those two places is not the same thing anymore.
1: We're bringing you another episode in our special Community Broadband Bits podcast series, Why North Carolina Broadband Matters. I'm Ryan Mercotillia-McCracken with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis, Minnesota. North Carolina Broadband Matters is a North Carolina nonprofit. Their mission is to attract, support, and champion the universal availability of affordable, reliable, high-capacity Internet access. The group has created the North Carolina chapter of Click, the Coalition for Local Internet Choice. ILSR is working with North Carolina Broadband Matters to produce this series focusing on issues affecting people in North Carolina that also impact folks in other regions. We're joined today by Doug Dawson, president of CCG Consulting, a veteran advisor to small public and private telecommunications carriers and an experienced, thoughtful voice in the broadband space. During their discussion, Christopher and Doug give the various levels of government across the United States a report card for their connectivity efforts during the pandemic and how the coronavirus has brought into focus the two digital divides facing our communities today. They talk about what the broadband gap looks like between rural and urban areas, and the problem of adoption versus access for North Carolina communities with connectivity obstacles. Christopher and Doug also talk about whether SpaceX or other satellite providers are a solution to North Carolina's rural broadband challenge, which leads them to reflect on the problem of the FCC's current minimum broadband speed definition, as a baseline for dispersing funds to providers connecting communities over the next 10 years. Now here's Christopher with Doug Dawson.
2: Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast Bonus Edition. This is another in our ongoing series from NC Hearts Gigabit, which is sponsored by NC Hearts Gigabit, a local organization um, part of uh, NC Broadband Matters in North Carolina, which is really focused on making sure that all of North Carolina is well served by internet access. And so we've been having a series of conversations uh, that illuminate different aspects of what it's going to take to get done. And now we have Doug. Dawson, the president of CCG, to, to join us to talk about a number of topics uh, that are important in the news right now. Doug, welcome to the show.
0: Oh, thanks, Chris. Uh, I guess this is our third, fourth, or fifth time we've talked. So.
2: Right. I think this might be the first bonus one we're doing together. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, but just for, for background's sake, uh, tell us just briefly about CCG, but also your involvement with uh, NC Broadband Matters.
0: Uh, CCG consulting, we're a full service telecom consulting firm. You name it, we do it engineering. We uh, do business plans. We do full regulatory compliance. We do back office software billing systems. We help people raise money. If someone needs help, you know, we, we do all those odd things consultants do when someone calls and goes, my 30 year old piece of gear is not working. Can you help? So, <laughs> so it's, it's actually kind of fun stuff. So, Get
2: out the 3d printer.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we've, um, I've been on the board of of, of NC Hearts Gigabit or NC uh, Gigabit Matters for, I guess, heading towards uh, my second year. So I moved to North Carolina about three years ago and decided that I needed to reach out to my own state because North Carolina has as many broadband problems as all other states. A lot of our state has no good broadband.
2: And you have worked now with more than a thousand clients, I believe. More than a thousand clients. Yes, and our, we've been around now. This is our
0: twenty third year. So, yes.
2: And you're you're well known in the municipal space, but you've worked mostly with private companies. And and I just think it's worth noting you've you'll work with yes. anyone that's trying to solve a broadband problem. It seems like
0: except the big companies. We don't work for AT&Ts <laughs> and Comcast. But yes, we were. Uh, most of my clients have been telephone companies, cable companies. Yes, so electric co ops.
2: So as we talk about the, the pandemic, now we're sitting here in uh, the end of June recording this to be released in early July, and um, you know, we're seeing the, the rising rates in a number of states, but I'm not going to cede the question. I'm just going to ask you, what do you think about the reaction of government, and, and it include both the state of North Carolina and the federal government, in, regarding broadband policy since COVID-19 became an issue three months ago?
0: Well, all the short-term work has been put into what's called CARES Act funding. The the feds gave CARES Act out to each state, and they gave a very short list of ways the states could use it. They had to spend the money by December thirty first. It has to be spent on items that are of an emergency nature, caused directly by COVID. Uh, and then, and and it was hinted that a, you know it, it goes for a number of areas, not just broadband. It was hinted that states should try to use that to solve some of the broadband problems caused. We sent all the students home. So every state is attacking that in a different way. Me and and uh, and Dana, who, who you know well, who now works for CCG, uh, actually Dana McKenzie. The, what a Dana McKenzie. Oh. Yeah, she she works. We worked for the state of Vermont to help them figure out how to handle their CARES money, and then we and doing that, we talked to I think thirteen or fourteen other states, and and everyone is attacking it in a different way. And it's very interesting to see them do it. What everybody wants to do with that money is to run out real fast and fund broadband, but it doesn't really fit those very short list of, of requirements. And unfortunately, that money can be taken back if spent poorly. There's a callback provision. If we recall from 2009, the government's going to take great glee in claiming that we, they were able to call back a lot of this emergency money that wasn't really needed. And so, so so states are faced with the dilemma of doing it in the very narrow definition. Doing it and, and being bold and going for it, and we see both of those reactions. Some states are going for it, so almost all states are doing things like putting Wi-Fi on school buses and parking them in rural neighborhoods. They're hand, they're putting in more rural Wi-Fi hotspots. A lot of states, uh, Maine, is an interesting one. They bought a Verizon hotspot plan for every student who didn't have a home broadband connection that expires on December 31st, and I think they're giving them all back. It's like, why didn't you at least keep the hotspots? <laughs> <laughs> You know, so, and then of course, if school goes back in, it's like, well, you know, you didn't really need those, except you do. We, we know that students need broadband at home anyway. So, so there, so we're seeing a lot of temporary solutions. Um, there's probably not, there's probably not a lot of good long-term stuff coming out of that cares money. It's, it's very short-term stuff. So.
2: But let me, let me ask you, I mean, uh, a lot of the states are definitely, well, let me put it this way. In a lot of states, we are seeing the Wi-Fi on school buses and things like that. In Maine, the state has definitely taken bolder action, and Maine has yes. long been a state that's well-organized for that. I don't get the sense that many states, um, including North Carolina, that the state has actually done very much. It seems like it's more local governments that have been stepping up to do that sort of thing.
0: Well, what some of the states did was turn around and hand the money down to counties and cities. Some states made the decision at the state level, other ones just... Just said this is too overwhelming for us, and they passed it down as block grants one layer lower. So that's that's why you're seeing some states where all the activities coming local. They said, "Look, you all know locally what you need." Interestingly enough, the local folks don't know what they need. The typical county commissioner has no idea what he needs for broadband if he's not done a broadband study. I mean, he's like, almost, they're like deer in a headlight over this issue. So, uh, And if you live in a place like in West Virginia where there's not any real ISPs, what do they do? I mean, you can't, you can't even give out hotspots when there's nobody to supply the broadband to them. It's, it's some very big challenges for some parts of the country. So.
2: One of the things that we have heard is that broadband is more important now than ever. <laughs> and I that,
0: we, that we've heard from everybody, yes. And but.
2: I've been trying to figure out how to wrestle with understanding this new reality because it seems like this would be the time for people like me to have uh, – the people would suddenly be interested in hearing about the solutions we've been putting forth for a long time. But I'm not really seeing that. I mean I just hear people talking about how it's important and I don't really see it reflecting in, in new priorities from any level of government really.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, at the the federal level, we see basically every other congressman putting his name on a bill for a different solution. You know, so at some point, hopefully they pull those all into one because they compete like crazy with each other. But most of those do not look like they consulted any experts. I mean, some of the things they're proposing have giant flaws in them. So so hopefully before those things become law, if any of them do, they go get some advice because you can't just throw money at broadband. You know, you got to do it the right way. And, and we've known for years what the right way is. So the states, you know, you're in one. The state of Minnesota has had a state broadband grant program. All they needed was more money. They know exactly mm-hmm. how to solve the problem. They, they've been getting 20 and $30 million a year that's a 100 year plan like that's not really going to help very much right give more money to that plan and we can get things done so but a lot of states don't have anything like that so
2: right now i i guess i'm i'm curious one of the best things that i see coming out of congress on this issue is that the We see a lot of talk around getting rid of the barriers that states have put up to stop municipal networks and partnerships, and now also language to stop uh, some of the laws that hinder co-ops, particularly Kentucky and Nebraska seem to be um, really hindering co-ops. And so that language to me seems like a no-brainer.
0: Yeah, several of the bills that have been introduced into the House have that language in it. They eliminate all barriers, period. So it doesn't really matter who steps up. In some places, the government's the only one who can step up. I mean- you know, we've had this crazy idea that somehow the public sector would come and fix everything. But there's large parts of the country where there is no public sector. You know, if there's not an ISP within 500 miles, of you, who's going to come and help you? And so, it ta- you know, it's, it takes all hands on deck. And that, we've known that for years, too. Everyone's got to have their own solution. So.
2: Yes. Yeah, that's something that I've, you know, I've tried to make more clear is that we're not here to say, you know, I, people know my bias is toward community solutions. But we're not here to say that that should be the only solution.
0: Well, and, and I have to say there, again, I've worked for heading towards 400 different municipalities now, counties and cities, and the vast majority of them have no desire to be an ISP, but they have a desire to throw money in to help solve the problem. In a lot of states, they can't even do that. So, And so, you know, certainly I am not one to tell a city, you have to be the one to do it. Sometimes it's the only choice, but usually there's options, though. So. And and cities, if you don't want to be an ISP, you probably don't. You probably shouldn't be an ISP. That's so right. A really <laughs> good sign that you're not ready to do that.
2: It's hard. Yeah, it's hard for people that really want to do it. For those whose heart isn't in it, I mean that's why in North Carolina we've been. We believe that we uh, should have um, the ability of any city that really wants to pursue the Wilson solution. They should be educated on it, and they should have the right to do it, which is blocked to them. But in reality, if North Carolina had broader freedom for local governments to solve this problem problem, most of them would not use the Wilson solution. They would want to work with a local ISP. There might be
0: five or six, and there might not even be that many. So it's, you know, I don't know why the ISPs are so afraid of it. There's not many folks who are going to do what Wilson did. You know, it's just not that common of a solution. It takes a very brave city, and Wilson was in the right economic space. I mean, their downtown was a ghost town. The city had gotten to that point because it used to be a tobacco farming area and, and, and any industries they had left. And and uh They had a vibrant set of residential housing, but they had, you know, no jobs anymore. And so that was their only solution that they could find. But there's not many cities that are going to be exactly in that same mode, so...
2: So in North Carolina, there's two proposals that I want to run by you. One you've written about on your um, "Pots and Pans" by CCG blog, which is a must reading for people that are interested in in this stuff. Um, North Carolina has a, a grant program, not unlike Minnesota's in some ways, um, that puts money into local private solutions to solve broadband. Some of that money can also go to the big ISPs as well, but it's called the Great Program, and and it's seems like it's maybe actually getting a little bit worse over time <laughs> rather than improving. So what is the nature of the GREAT program and and what have you identified in terms of things that are holding it back?
0: Well, first off, you know, when you call your grant program GREAT, it ought to be GREAT. So it's like, that was a pretty bold name. It's
2: the only one in the country that has that proud of the name right <laughs> right minnesota it's border to border which is also bold but also yeah, that's pretty bold it's, it's yes. not great i mean it's right calling it great is right up there with utopia you're asking for trouble yeah so you know first off it's only it's
0: only in its second year so it doesn't have a long history so this is a fairly new grant program the problem they ran into right off the bat in the first year is they awarded some grants and then post grant award they came back and layered on a requirement that the winner of the grant had to be able to guarantee the funding for 100% of the grant, including the half that the state was giving. And so that's almost impossible to do for most ISPs. First off, why would you guarantee the half the state's giving you? Is the state not sure that their money's going to show up? <laughs> Very interestingly, and I don't, you know, I don't know what happened behind the scenes, so I can only speculate, but that requirement popped up at the same time that the FCC tried to layer that requirement onto the RDOF grants at the federal level. And if you recall, That got killed within 10 days. I mean, everyone in the United States screamed, are you crazy? You can't get letters. The FCC wanted ISPs to get letters of credit, and they didn't know what a letter of credit is. A letter of credit is a loan. I mean, the banks actually have to set the money aside. The North Carolina one says you need a letter of credit or you need one of the owners to pledge that's the same thing as a letter of credit. You actually are putting your house and your home on the line to pledge for that grant. That's just a drastic thing to ask somebody to do. And so the, 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 not, uh, several of those grants ended up getting canceled. and they never got built because those were not in the original grant rules, but then they were, after they won the award, they said, oh, by the way, we have this new requirement. Now here in the second year, that is now one of the grant requirements. So A lot of those ISPs who didn't win the first time are not bothering to apply anymore. So the money is, that money's only going to go to the richest ISPs. I mean, that's simply the result of that. As long as those ISPs build good broadband, I guess that's okay, but it's certainly, (laughs) certainly cut down. Unfortunately, in North Carolina, the worst, there's broadband problems everywhere, but the very worst is at the far east and at the far west. And that's where the little ISPs operate. So they've sort of shut those guys out. And those are the folks who are going to crawl through Appalachia, you know, with little pockets of wireless solutions, which is the best you can do here. And the big companies aren't trying to solve this stuff here. So, so they've effectively cut out a lot of the people who would be bringing solutions. It's just why you would limit anybody is beyond me because those, those funds were not at risk. No, the other the other states don't do that. We know that when people win these awards, they build what they're supposed to build. So.
2: Right, well, I mean, I think from a business perspective for someone who doesn't have an MBA, it's worth explaining what that means. I mean, what it means is that is that if you have $10 million available to you to build a network, the state is basically asking you not to build as much network as you can. It's saying right. you need to keep a bunch of money aside for no reason except for the state right. is requiring you to. And small providers, they aren't doing that. I mean, when I look at the small providers that I'm familiar with. If they have a cent they can put into a network, they're putting it into the network.
0: Well, when you say small, I mean, there's ISPs with 20, 30, 50,000 customers who have a million dollars at most in the bank. They can't do what these grants are asking because they spend it all. You know, the government has preached for years, the private sector needs to take care of broadband. They're out doing that. So they don't have any money in the bank. They spend it. Every nickel that comes in, they spend it. You're absolutely right. So you know, it's, it's very difficult for the folks to do that. Um, so, so it's, it simply is an unneeded hindrance. My guess is it came from the big ISPs that got layered on. I don't know that for a fact. That's just a guess.
2: But that's the pattern. I mean, let's just be that's clear. The pattern. I mean, that's the pattern. ever since, I mean, and, and I don't want to make this partisan because anyone who knows me knows that I have plenty of vituperation for both the Democrats and the Republicans. But the Republicans that took over North Carolina in 2011 have entered in and just basically done whatever the big cable and telephone companies wanted. There's been very little pushback. No, I
0: have to say it goes way back beyond that. The, the legislature in North Carolina has been owned by the big ISPs for my entire memory. So it goes way back before sure. 2000. Well,
2: I think that's... So, I mean, like, we did the podcast, uh, we did two-hour coverage with Jack Kozort and uh, and Catherine Rice um, talking about this and identifying how, when the Democrats were in charge, they did Time Warner Cable, did the statewide franchising, and it, that was a process that really rolled local rules and um, local authority. Uh, but the, they did have the sense not to let AT&T and Time Warner Cable restrict competition in the way that in 2011, the Republicans did. So it seemed like there's never been a good time. I mean, I, you know, and I'll, I'll just say that if anyone wants to see Democrats doing um, AT&T's bidding as fast as possible, they should visit Sacramento someday, um, right. or Madison right. um, in Wisconsin. Um, so this is, but it, it's just a, it's incredibly frustrating. That leads us to the second bill that I wanted to ask you about, which is, um, it looks like now, and actually we saw a Washington Times editorial from a North Carolina, Carolina, Carolina lawmaker who I don't know if he's just trying to try out for something or, but he's making the case that the state should give a bunch of money to SpaceX for satellite based system.
0: Right. Two and a half, two and a half million dollars. Yes.
2: So, I mean, I I don't like to personalize this to say like, like, you know, he's giving money to Elon Musk, but when the state is desperate and looking every state is very, very worried about future revenues to be talking right now about giving money for satellite based service It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. What's the plan there, and what's the critique of it?
0: Well, you got to remember that two-thirds of all bills that are introduced are to please a donor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't think that he probably expected that bill to pass, but you never know in this crazy state. (laughs) But, uh, you know, so obviously Elon has been throwing money around here, and some of his biggest proponents in the federal Congress happen to be North Carolina congressmen. So, so I think that's where that came from. SpaceX may never have a broadband customer. They are far away yet from actually being a successful company. They have to raise something like another 8 or $9 billion to make this work, and that may never happen. All their big financiers have sort of gotten cold feet and backed out, and so there's no one writing big checks to them right now. You know, why this, a state would give them money to... An ISP that doesn't exist is the big question. That little amount of money makes no difference to SpaceX. What if they never have a customer? On top of that, even when SpaceX has a customer, they've gotten approval to have one million licenses nationwide for Cause they have a limit on how much bandwidth they can move up and down. It's not unlimited. And so, you know, if they only get a million customers in the United States, that doesn't begin to touch the world broadband gap. That solves maybe a fifth or sixth of it. This, it's not going to be this wide solution. You look at Appalachia here, you have to realize now, if you're, if you are in a southern place like Arizona and you're in a flat place, one of those satellites is in the air for about 90 minutes over you. The further north you go, that's a shorter amount of time. And then if you live anywhere where it's hilly, now the hills block off part of the time you can see the satellites. If you live in Appalachia, you might see that satellite for five minutes. I don't know if he can put up enough satellites to serve Appalachia. I mean, you would have to have satellites, would have to be 20 in the sky at the same time. In order to serve a house in, in these valleys in Appalachia. The fact is it's probably not coming here. It's, it's probably never going to work in these kind of places ever because it's just the wrong solution because you can't see the satellites well enough, not to mention the trees. You know, mm-hmm. you'd have to cut down all the trees literally. So, so, you know, it's, it's a crazy idea. That's, we, you know, I hope that Elon Musk makes it work. I'm certainly not against it. And we don't know what his speeds will be. We don't know what his prices will be. I think he's going to charge high prices i think he's going to cherry pick and i would if i was him uh, you know now rural folks will pay it but because he's only going to serve a percentage of them they're going to be competing to get it it's not going to be the panacea that everyone's talking about i just saw an article yesterday that uh from canada and they've been talking about the exact same thing how he's going to solve it and they're all going folks you realize you can't see those satellites from canada <laughs> <laughs> he's not solving any of them. he just he's never asked for a license there It's like, no, he's not coming. Even if he launches all 4,000 of the satellites, of which he now has 423, he has a long way to go.
2: Well, I think it's worth noting, though, people may listen to you now. And in a few months, I think we're going to start seeing stories from the early beta testers about how this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Of course it is.
0: (laughs) There's going to be one customer on one satellite for 20 minutes, and he's going to get two gigabits. And because that's what they're going to force for the beta test. That's not what happens in real life. I remember when the very first three G cell sites came in and they put them in a DC. That was where that was where the very first test site was. And I looked there at the time. And the first guys who got on there thought it was the most amazing thing because there there was one guy on a cell site. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's pretty darn good. But once you put them a- 10,000 people on it, it became pretty crappy, and that's exactly what will happen to the satellites. So yeah, the beta test will look amazing, but it won't have anything to do with real life.
2: That's what I'm expecting. That's what I want to try and inoculate people about. I also think that um, one of the things is, even if if the recurring price, the monthly price, is reasonable, let's say 60 or $70 a month, I think it'll be curious to see what the install fee is, because the kind of equipment that you'll have to have to track all those different satellites to be pointing in the right direction and stuff like that, it seems to me like that's going to be something that'll be costly to get set up on the first time.
0: He hasn't said what the price is, but I'm I'm guessing with mass production, it'll just be two or 300 bucks is my mm. guess, but who, who knows? Yeah, who knows?
2: So let me ask you about the digital divide more generally. And, and I feel like saying the digital divide sets us up for... Just arguing about what it actually means, but let's take, like, two digital divides, rural versus urban, and then also adoption versus you know, people who are online, um, the, the people who are online versus not, regardless of whether it's available. Are these problems getting better?
0: No, they're both widening like crazy. The, the urban-rural one is undergoing a transformation that's almost too big to grasp. You know, There's folks in rural areas, we do speed tests and we do studies all the time, and you'll go to whole counties where nobody in the whole county is getting more than five megabits per second. So, you know, and some of them are getting a fourth of a megabit per second, barely better than dialogue, right? And so those folks have been locked in those same speeds. Well, they're not, they're not, they haven't been locking them. Those speeds have been getting worse because during COVID, when more people came home to work, they actually degraded the networks by overloading them. So your DSL went from five to three megabits per second. So, so their speeds are really lousy and they're just sitting there and they're not getting better. Meanwhile, in the cities we've had a giant transformation of broadband speeds. In the last three years, all the cable companies have unilaterally increased their speeds to one to 200 megabits per second. You know, one day, two years ago, I have Charter. Charter raised me from 60 to 135 megabits per second, same price. It just showed up one day. Um, And that's happened nationwide. And so what we see now is the national average broadband speeds are over 100 megabits per second. And that includes bringing in that those slow people who have three, right? So that's the average. And so the cities have gotten so much faster than the rural areas that the gap is just gigantic. And what they can do with it is now drastically different. And that can be expressed in terms of the amount of broadband that homes use. So at the end of 2017, the average home for all of the United States, and this was measured by a company called Open Vault, and they and they have equipment in all the ISP uh, hubs and stuff, so they're able to measure these things. And 215 gigabytes is what the average home used in a month, both combining upload and download. Almost all of that is download. By the end of 2019, that had grown to 344 gigabits. 215 to 344. At the end of March of this year, because of COVID, that had grown to 405 gigabytes. You know, somebody on a one megabit. Per second rural <laughs> is not even getting the 215 you can't use that much broadband in a month and so those folks are limited the very basic you know the emails trying to do some online shopping maybe on days when you know when all the all the internet guides line up correctly in the right direction right. you know and all those things right and so they you know meanwhile in the cities. Folks are really using, they're figuring out how to really use their broadband. I mean, houses are just running three, four, five, six, seven devices at the same time. They're doing big broadband applications. People in the rural areas are not working from home because they can't. They can't lock onto a school server. They can't lock onto a business server. They're not doing Zoom meetings. You know, I've been doing Zoom meetings in in rural areas. You get seven people on the screen who are in towns and everyone else is a call-in because they can't make that connection. And so just sort of very basic stuff doesn't work in the rural areas. And we're taking these things for granted in the urban areas. That gap, just since 2017, that gap has doubled in that short of a period of time. It's getting so drastically different that the internet in, in those two places is not the same thing anymore. It's simply not the same thing. We can't say that somebody who's got a 10 megabit connection in a rural area has the same product as someone who's got a 150 megabit uh, cable. It's just not the same product anymore.
2: And one of the ways that we see that is when we design websites, and I, I used to do web design um, quite a bit in server administration type stuff, so I still pay attention to this stuff. You know, when I, when we're putting up images now on muninetworks.org for feature stories, uh, we have to scale them large so that they will look nice on a 4K screen for some someone that's really advanced and, and using the cutting edge technology. And then that same image is then forced down the pipe of someone who's trying to view it on a three megabit connection. And they're just choking on it because we're sending so much data their way because that's the way the pages are optimized. And this is a
0: flat website. It's just an article. I mean, I have a blog. People ask me to email them copies of my blog all the time because they can't look at it. Mm -hmm. They go, I heard you had this article and -and so-and-so Could you send me a copy. Because their home broadband connection is that, or even their business broadband connection. I mean, you got to remember, you know, I just did a study in West Virginia. Rural libraries have three megabit connections. It's like, you know, nobody there in the whole county can do anything. It's just unbelievably terrible. Um, Can you imagine a whole county cut off from the internet, basically? And, and that's all over the country. There's just so many places like that. It's just unbelievable. So
2: I think the better map is just who's your provider. If you have a local company, even if you're in a very low density area like North Dakota, it's not just that. It's not, like, it's not like the federal government said, we're going to make money available only to cooperatives in North Dakota. They made money available to the United States and the cooperatives in North Dakota took advantage of it. But if you lived in a CenturyLink area or before that, a Quest area or an AT&T area, you just didn't get anything but the the point is, I feel like in many ways, we talk about this as though it's a rural problem, but fundamentally, if you break it down to areas of rural America that have local providers versus rural areas that had a t and t as a telephone company, that's the divide.
0: yeah, we have four or five counties in North Carolina who have broadband everywhere. Wilkes County is a pretty good example, so because they had a co-op there who built it um you know the If you're the county next door, you're really jealous because they still have three megabit DSL.
2: Right. And the one thing I wanted to note also is just that to some extent, I don't think saying three megabit or a quarter megabit even gets at it because those connections typically reset regularly of all kinds of reliability issues. And so even if you wanted to do something, it's not just a matter of saying it's going to take longer. You may never be able to handle a longer transaction because the connection won't stay alive long enough.
0: Well, no, if you have DSL on a really bad copper network, just as, th- as your are dropped, your house flips in the wind to cut you off.
2: So let's, as a final issue that I want to want to talk about, let's just talk about moving forward. I mean, we see a lot of state broadband programs, even money, even ones that are using CARES Act money, and they're requiring connections to be 25-3 at a minimum. Uh, the federal government with the Rural D- Digital Opportunity Fund, putting $20 billion into rural broadband soon, will allow people to bid to provide 25-3 service for the next 10 years. So 25-3, you've done a lot of work on this, that's 25 megabits down, 3 megabits up, was set. Five years ago more than five years ago which means the research was done seven years ago as to um you know what the proper speeds were now we have COVID 19 where we have you know multiple video feeds at home um, from parents and kids Uh, so what is a good minimum speed that we should be looking at now and how do we think about calculating that
0: well if you just there's two or three ways to look at it the very most conservative way would be to say we know that broadband usage has been growing by roughly 21 to 24% a year for the last almost two decades. And if you assume that the 25.3 was a good definition, just applying that, and that has nothing to do with any real life experiences, that alone would get you somewhere today between 60 and 80 megabits per second. We all know that the three megabit uploads was in a different time and place where people didn't use upload. It's got to be way faster today because all these things we just talked about, schools and Zoom and everything.
2: Not to mention the ring doorbell, um, all the FaceTime, that's all after this research was done.
0: That's all upload stuff, right? But if you start looking at what houses are really using, I mean, I've talked to houses who have a 100 megabit connection who ran into trouble during COVID. So the fact is, you know, that's probably the minimum speed today. But if you're getting a federal grant to build, quite honestly, if you look forward to six years from now when they have to finish that construction, do that same math and trend it out, it's about 250 megabits. We shouldn't be building anything slower than that with federal money. Because anything slower than that is not going to feel adequate by the time it's finished. I mean, if you build today and you build a 100 megabit network, your customers are going to be very happy. They're not going to be happy a decade from now. A lot of them will, but a chunk of them will not be happy a decade from now. We are now, here's an an amazing statistic that people aren't talking about. 11% of homes in the U.S. now have fiber. That's what's growing and that's what's really driving up the speed. The national penetration rate of gigabit. Connections is now seven and a half percent. We're now developing for the first time applications that really use that much broadband. Those folks are going to do things that nobody else can do. We won't be able. I won't be able to do them. You have cable at your house. I'm on. And I'm on Charter. The fact is, we won't be able to do the things that those folks are going to be able to do. They are going to finally be able to do telepresence, where I can have this meeting. With you today, and, and, and on today's bandwidth, you would be a little fuzzy. You would be sort of a transparent mm-hmm. guy sitting in the room with me. But it would be kind of cool, and it would look like you. And you would move in another, you know, in another ten years, it'll look just like you. You won't be able to tell it's not Chris in the room. That's something we were promised by AT and T in about 1980. <laughs> <even>. <laughs>
2: Fact is, it's now possible. I don't remember that so well in in the moment because I was two.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, I'll I'll just remind you we were promised that. Um, Fact: the fact is, those kind of things are now becoming reality. You know, three D. You know, literally, and that that leads literally to the living room holodeck. That's where folks Mm -hmm. are headed. But but the business applications are the important ones. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm going to be hard pressed to be talked into getting to an airplane after COVID. Somewhere. yeah it's like, I'm not going, I'm not flying somewhere for a one-hour meeting anymore.
2: I've been saying that too. I mean, I I was trying to imagine what would get me out of my city on an airplane. <laughs> and I used to tra- I used to travel every other week. I'm sure you traveled a lot more than that. But I mean, I've traveled twenty or thirty times a year, and I can't imagine. I in 2021, I'll reconsider. But until then, I can't imagine traveling right now.
0: Yeah. I've, no, I've traveled fifty to seventy times a year for twenty five years. I have a lot of yeah. miles. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that's
2: the thing too. Is right is that I've racked up some miles, and I was looking forward to some family vacations. But I have all of our grandparents for my my son are uh, alive and at risk. So I'm not going to be the one traveling around, right? So,
0: so the answer is, you know, if you're going to build networks, you have to build them for the future needs. Why would, you, especially with money, that's going to give you six years mm-hmm. to build them? You can't. But you. The 25.3 is already obsolete. It's completely obsolete. Now, I say that and that poor guy who's got the three megabit connection is thrilled to get the 25.3 for about two or three months until he tries to work from home and it doesn't work. Then he's like, well, this isn't that good. And so as soon as they actually try to use it, they will find themselves just as unhappy with that within a year as they were with the three. But at least two of them can get on the Internet at the same time. I mean, I've talked to so many families who, during COVID, had a schedule in their house. You can work on your schoolwork from 10 to 11, and then I have a business meeting and one person at a time. That's not a way to live.
2: Well, I remember when FCC commissioners like um, uh, Michael Reilly were defending The 10 megabit one by one megabit, which I think was a decision made before his time, but he's still defending it in terms of the idea that we should get people a Chevy before we get them a Cadillac. The problem is, is that is that if you spend all that money getting people something that doesn't actually work, it doesn't necessarily put you closer to the next goal.
0: Well, that, that didn't get people a Chevy. It upgraded people from only having a front bumper to having a rear and a back bumper. They still were missing the car in
2: the middle. <laughs> Wait, but there's a lot of places to go, but I, I do feel like people who are not technical, one of the things that I, I've always appreciated about you is that you're a technical person who can talk to non-technical people. But putting money into a 25.3 connection doesn't mean that we're closer to a 100 megabit connection.
0: No, if that technology can't be upgraded, then we're not one bit closer. And unfortunately, what's going to happen is the FCC is now going to say that geographic area is solved. We're not giving them any more money. That's the bad side of that. They're saying that for areas where they gave the money in the reverse auction to the satellite carriers, mm-hmm. The fourth biggest winner of that auction was Viasat. They brought nothing new. They've been available for years. It's like anyone in those areas could have bought it. They didn't buy it because they hate it. Everyone in the rural areas tried satellite once and went, this stuff is horrible. And they got rid of it. We don't find more than five to 10% penetrations in rural areas on satellite. And those folks hate it. And not one of them says a good thing about it. And so and they and the federal money is lighting them in these auctions. This is mm-hmm. insane. They they do have fast speeds, but the fast speeds are no good because their latency, which is the delays, are so bad that you can't do zoom on satellite they'll tell you you can but try to do it you cut off every three minutes
2: well and if you if you do a half hour zoom you're probably cut off for the rest of the day the way their bandwidth caps work
0: right that, that's true yeah.
2: yeah well there's a there's a lot of things to work on but I'm, I'm hoping we gave people um some more insight into some of the challenges how that's changed a little bit with uh, covid19 and um doug i really appreciate your time to um to share your wisdom with us
1: well it's always good talking to you chris Thanks for tuning in to this episode in our Why North Carolina Broadband Matters podcast series and for listening to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Remember to follow Christopher on Twitter. His handle is at CommunityNets. And if you follow at ncheartgb on Twitter, you'll tap into all the North Carolina Broadband Matters material. We want to thank Shane Ivers of SilvermanSound.com for the series Music, What's the, the Angle, licensed through Creative Commons. And we want to thank you for listening. Until next time.